Over the past three weeks, we've been thinking about suffering. Three weeks ago, we looked at the beginning and end of suffering, Genesis and Revelation. And then two weeks ago, we thought about God's sovereignty in suffering, that there's nothing in this world outside of his control. And last week, we looked at God's purposes in suffering for Christians. We've come to understand, hopefully, a lot about suffering this these few weeks we've nailed it we're ready well of course we're not are we especially when we come to see the book of job because the book of job shows us that no matter how much you think about suffering no matter how well you understand the bible when you suffer if you really suffer it will all fall apart and you'll ask questions about things that you thought you knew And you will revisit them again and again. The book of Job is about someone in the middle of suffering. And as we look at the book of Job, the central message and the most important thing I want you to take home this morning, if you take home nothing else, the most important thing in suffering is not knowing why. It's knowing God. It's not having all your questions answered. It's knowing God better. We're going to look at Job as his life falls apart, as he questions God, as he gets angry, as he goes around in circles. Having the right answers in the end is not what gets Job through. There's something more important than just having the right answers. And we find out what that something is in the book of Job. Turn with me to Job chapter 1 verse 1. It'll be really helpful this morning to have your Bibles open because we're doing a lot of uh, flipping. Job 1 verse 1. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Right at the start, the book of Job begins by telling us that Job is a good person. That's the framework of this. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. And we know from Proverbs that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And he rejects evil. And I can't think of anyone else in the Bible apart from Jesus who gets such a good rap. Job's only mentioned two other times in the Bible. In Ezekiel, which we looked at last year, where Ezekiel describes Noah, Daniel and Job as three great righteous men. And then in James chapter 5 verse 11, where James praises Job for his perseverance. And not only is Job good... His life is blessed by God. He's one of the most prosperous men in all the East. Job is good. His life is blessed. And Job's extraordinary goodness is only made all the clearer in the next scene as we look into heaven, as the camera pans from earth to heaven and we catch a sneak preview into the very throne room of God. And there we hear it from the mouth of God himself, Job is good. There's no one on earth like him. Job chapter 1 verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God 
and shuns evil. There's no denying it. This is a strange scene, isn't it? The angels are there to present themselves before the Lord and someone called the Satan appears with them. And there's hardly anything in the Old Testament about this character called the Satan. Most of what we know about him in the Old Testament is in the book of Job. We, of course, know a lot more because we have the New Testament. We know Satan is not good. We know he's opposed to God in every way. But we also know that Satan has no power apart from what God gives him. Ultimately, he's a servant of God. Despite what you might read in Frank Peretti novels or hear from other Christians about Satan's so-called power, he can't so much as even lift a finger against one of God's people without God's permission. Verse 9, because Satan wants to hurt Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What a terrible accusation that Satan makes, not just against Job, but against God. God, the only reason that Job fears you is because you bless him. Job doesn't delight in you for who you are. Job likes you because you're his Santa Claus. You give him good things. Of course he's going to like you. Take away all his blessings and he will curse you to your face. Now, we're not told why God agrees to take Satan's challenge. In fact, Job's not even told why that this conversation even took place. Job is about to suffer terribly, and he doesn't know why. And we heard in the reading earlier what happened. A messenger comes. And another messenger comes, and another messenger comes, all with devastating news. Job loses his possessions, he loses his house, but then all his children are killed. And then the next day he's covered in sores, and he goes from being the most blessed man in all the east to sitting in a pile of ashes, picking at his scabs with broken pieces of pottery. He's lost everything. Look at his response, verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and complained and mumbled against God and grumbled. That's not what it says, is it? Then he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I wonder how God must have felt when Job did that. 
God must have been delighted. His servant Job, when he's lost everything, falls down and worships God. It's exactly the opposite of what the Satan said would happen. Job loses all the blessings that Satan claimed were the only reason that Job worshipped God, and still Job worships God. There's nothing in Job's life that could bring God more glory than that statement in that situation. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job's been tested. God's been tested. Satan has been proved wrong. Now, Job could end there. We could go straight to chapter 42, and Job gets a new family, and he gets his house back, and they all live happily ever after. But the book of Job is not over. The book of Job is just beginning. And for the next 34 chapters of Job, we see arguments and confusion and questioning as Job and his friends, who have no idea of what's going on in heaven, try and come to terms with, with, with Job's suffering. Now, that's how suffering works, isn't it? One phone call, one knock on the door, and you spend the following months, years, questioning, wondering why, numb, angry. What's happened? Where's God? Why has this happened? Going round in circles. That's what happens in Job. As we read on, it goes on and on and on, and they recover the same ground again and again. That's how suffering works, isn't it? One piece of news, months of agony. We're up to point two on your outline, confusion in suffering. Now, before I go any further, I want to take you to the end of the book of Job. Now, let me tell you, I'm not the kind of person who, when I get a novel turn to the last page to see how it ends up. I like the suspense, but it's very helpful to know where we're going in the book of Job. Chapter 42, verse 7. Keep your finger in chapter 3. Sorry, it's probably already out. In Job chapter 42, verse 7, after Job and all his friends have spoken, verse 7, after the Lord had said these things to Job... He said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, one of Job's friends, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. That's a good framework to help us as we look at Job. In what we're about to look at now, Job is the one who speaks rightly of God, not his friends. Now don't lose sight of that because Job seems to say some stuff that's pretty dicey. Job says stuff that if someone in your Bible study group said it, you would jump in straight away and correct them. You would not allow it to go unfixed up. And yet, in these questions, Job is one of the most righteous, God-fearing men alive. On the other hand, Job's friends say some stuff that sounds pretty good. The kind of stuff I've heard us say to each other to try and comfort each other. And yet, God's verdict at the end of Job is that his friends have not spoken rightly of God. So let's pay attention because 
every word of Job's friends is a rebuke to our selfish comforting of others. And every word of Job is a model of how to suffer. So let's pick it up in Job chapter 3, verse 2. Actually, Job chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. May the day of my birth perish. And the night it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. Verse 11. Why did I not perish at birth? And die as I came from the womb. Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? Verse 20. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come. Who search for it more than hidden treasure. Job wishes he was dead. He's not suicidal. He's not thinking of killing himself. But if this is what it means to be alive, curse the day that I was born. How is this good to be alive? Why is life given to us to suffer? And this is only Job's first speech of nine. He's only just starting to get warmed up. And already he's asking the big questions. Suffering hurts. And it hurts the most godly and upright man alive on earth. And so the questions begin why all this suffering why was i born for this to happen to me now if you've never asked similar questions it's not because you're more godly than job it's because you haven't suffered as much as he has if you have suffered you've asked those questions but in chapter four the advice starts Eliphaz is the first one to speak. He wants to give Job some comforting advice. And I reckon what he says actually sounds pretty good. His advice to Job, and I want you to think about this in the framework of what we've been looking at over the past three weeks. His advice to Job is, God is big. He's in control. Trust him. Look at verse 9. This is Eliphaz speaking about God. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water on the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Verse 17. Blessed is the man who God corrects. So Job, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Job, trust God. He's working for your good. He'll bring you through this. That's exactly what I've been saying for the last three weeks. And there's nothing wrong with what Eliphaz says. It's just not what Job needs to hear at the moment. It doesn't work. It's true, but Job's not comforted by it. Job already knows it. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. 
The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Job knows this is from the hand of God who's in control of everything. He doesn't need to be told it. And so Job's questions continue. Chapter 7, verse 20. What have I done to you, God? Why have you made me your target? Verse 21. Why do you not pardon my offences and forgive my sins? Well, that's just uh, too much for poor old Bildad who's been sitting on the sideline. Now he pipes in. He wants to correct. Job's gone over the line here. He's asked too many um, tough questions. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Bildad is that person, that Bible study, that steps in and corrects someone who's just said something wrong, even though they've spoken from the depths of their heart. Bildad has a simple philosophy. God will bless people who look to him. Look at his advice next. It's a corker, verse 4. Don't ever do this. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you, Job, will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Next one off, cab off the rank is Zophar, and his advice is similar. Job, you must have done something wrong. There must be some hidden sin in your life. And if you can find it and repent of it, God will heal you. Heard that one before. Chapter 11, verse 13. Job, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. Job, search yourself, confess up, look to God and he will restore you. The problem is, we know from our insights into the heavenly discussion, it's exactly the opposite. God is not, uh, Job is not suffering because of his sin. Job is suffering because of his righteousness. That's why he's been singled out. That's why this is happening to him. Zophar's system sounds logical. It's neat and tidy, but it leaves no room for God. No room for any mystery. And as you read on in the book of Job, chapter after chapter, it goes on and on and you get, it becomes tiresome. His friends give more and more advice and it gets worse and worse. Biblical advice, but unhelpful advice. And Job asks more and more questions of God that you feel like you want to jump in and correct. They argue, on and on it goes. But as it goes on, we start to see the difference between Job and his friends. Job is less concerned about being right. He's more concerned about being right with God. Job doesn't want to win the argument. He wants to be, be right with God. And we see that in some comments by Job. Don't look them up, but Job 
chapter 13, verse 15, Job 13, 15, Job says about God, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Or 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives. 19.27, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. More than anything else, Job wants to know God. Which brings us to the very central theme of the book of Job. When we suffer, what is the best thing? Is it more important to have our questions answered as to why we're suffering? Or is it more important that we know God better in our suffering? What is better in your pain? An explanation of why what's happening to you is happening? Or to know God better in it? It comes to a climax in chapter 28. Chapter 28 is all about human wisdom. Turn with me to chapter 28. It's about how clever we are. It's about how great technology is. The technology of Job's day wasn't uh, iPods and um, computers. But we hear about it in chapter 28, verse 1. There's a mine for silver, a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth. Copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for awe in the blackest darkness. Human beings are so clever. We have so much technology, so much wonders of modern medicine and so on. We may be clever, but are we wise? And how do we get wise? And at the end of this poem in chapter 28, verse 28, God answers... God says to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Now, they're exactly the two phrases used of Job in chapter 1, verse 1. Job is not wise because he's clever, because he knows more than his friends. Job is wise because he fears God. That's why in the end, it's Job and not his friends who God approves and says, they've spoken what is rightly of me. His friends may have technically spoken what is true, but Job spoke out of a fear of God. See, wisdom's not about being able to quote that God is in control of everything. Wisdom's not about being able to recite Romans 8.28 to other people when they're suffering. Wisdom is knowing God. And fearing God and knowing that God is working for your good because you know him. That's why right at the start of the book, Job didn't say to the Satan, consider my servant Job. He knows everything about suffering. He's really wise. He knows the Bible well. Job, God says, consider my servant Job. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. And that's why when God finally speaks in the book of Job, he does not answer one of Job's questions. God appears on the scene in chapter 38, but he does not give Job any answers to the questions that he's asked. 
Because in the end, Job doesn't need his questions answered. He needs to be reminded of who God is. And that's what God does. This is the last passage we'll look at. Come with me to Job chapter 38. Job 38. We'll pick it up from verse... Yeah, we'll go from the start. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? See? God is not answering Job's questions, but God is saying, I am God. Fear me. And then after God says that, and Job responds in fear, God pats Job on the back and says, Well done, my servant Job. You feared me and you've spoken well of me. And that's what the book of Job is about. We don't need all the answers. But we do need to know God. And of course, we can know God. We can fully know God, even better than Job did, because Jesus has revealed him to us. In our suffering, we need to know Jesus and to learn to trust him. If God took everything away from you, your home, your job, your health, your family, would you still worship him and desire above all things to know him? Over the past three weeks, we've been thinking about suffering. Why have you been interested in the series on suffering? Is it so that somehow when suffering comes, your life might be easier? Or is it so that you can know God better? And when suffering comes, you can respond in a way that shows that you fear him. Is your life about honouring God? Or are you more concerned in controlling your circumstances to make life easier and more comfortable? Let's make it our aim at Morning Church not to give each other cheap advice like Job's friends but to help each other know Jesus better. Let's make it that our reason for being in a small group is not to be comforted in our troubles or not to give people advice, but our primary aim for being in a small group to help each other know God better. And let's make it our number one prayer for our friends and family who are suffering, not that they get better, but that they know God better. 
I haven't suffered a lot in my life, hard to relate to Job, but there's plenty of people in our church family who have. Jess has, I know. And quite often Jess has said to me, Wayne, why has this happened? I can't see any good that's come of it. But when Jess goes through incredible suffering and at the end of it still says, may the name of the Lord be praised, that brings God incredible glory when the brookses have been in hospital now for almost nine weeks and they still choose to say may the name of the lord be praised that gives god great glory the more suffering that we've been through like job if we come out at the other end and say, may the name of the Lord be praised. That gives God great glory. Because when it comes to suffering, true wisdom is not about knowing why. It's about fearing God and worshipping him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the suffering that in your wisdom you choose to allow us to go through. And Father, we would never choose it, but thank you that you've allowed it. And thank you that when people within our church family and outside our church family who love you, when they go through suffering, and they still choose to want to know you, how incredibly glorified you are. Father, it's a daring prayer to pray, but we pray that you might be glorified in our lives. And Father, we pray that above all, we wouldn't be searching for comfort or even for answers, but that we would fear you and want to know you more. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.